0: A highly connected future means that you can have virtual value streams where one factory is building one thing and another factory is building another thing, almost intrinsically connected. That is a bright, composable future we're headed towards. It's going to be tremendously impactful that companies adopt this sort of agile, composable approach.
1: Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get
0: real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers.
1: Happy. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics, and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now, your host, Chris Lukey. Hey folks, it's episode 165. Today, we're exploring how to unlock the full potential of Frontline operations, lean manufacturing, and industry 4.0. That's because our guest this week is Natan Linder, the CEO and co-founder of Tulip Interfaces, the industry's leading frontline operations platform, which gives manufacturers a holistic view of quality, process cycle times, OEE, and more. We'll define what a frontline operations platform is here in just a second, but while Tulip is a relatively new company, I should say that this isn't Natan's first game-changing venture. He also co-founded the 3D printing technology company Formlabs, where he's still the chairman. That company is still doing very well, so needless to say, Natan has had a knack for building companies that are very relevant to the needs of industry. Natan has his own podcast, by the way. It's called Augmented Ops, and he does a great job of digging a little deeper than most folks do into the trends currently impacting manufacturers like digital transformation, generative AI. He actually has a term for this. He calls it buzzword bingo. You'll hear him in today's conversation also call it Gen AI bingo. But now that you've got some initial background on Natan, here are three more things you can expect from this episode. First, we'll hear about Natan's background in the early days of mobile phone development. Second, we'll learn how Natan's focus on frontline operations has shaped his perspectives on manufacturing execution systems, lean manufacturing, and the promises of the Industry 4.0 era. We'll spend some time with all of these in today's conversation. Finally, we'll get some quick thoughts at the end as to what industries of the future might look like. As always, if you want to learn more, check out the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 165. There's a lot in this episode, and I'll be sharing some of my biggest takeaways following the interview once we get to the outro. I'd also love to hear from you as to what some of your biggest takeaways were from this episode, and maybe what you'd like to hear more of in the future, because as I said, from frontline ops to lean manufacturing, we touch on a lot of topics today. Fortunately, I have a great spot to continue the conversation. You should go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community to request to join our private user community. I've been doing my best to turn this into, let's say, a super fan group, for lack of a better word. But this is where manufacturers that are driven in their careers, the ones that really care about their businesses and the industry as a whole, This is where they're hanging out. It's a spot to connect with others in the community, ask questions, and of course, discuss your learnings from these episodes. I'm in there on a regular basis in these discussions as well, so if you'd like to join the Manufacturing Happy Hour Industry community, this is a group that is a private LinkedIn group go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. It'll take you right there. And make sure to send me a LinkedIn connection request and a message letting me know that you're trying to get into the group and you heard about it on the podcast. Anyway, hope to have you in the community. And with that, it's time to get rolling into this week's interview. And yeah, this one was actually recorded live at their offices right after a really cool tour of their Tulip Experience Center. So Let's head to Tulip HQ in Boston, Massachusetts to meet up with Natan Linder. Natan, you are someone I've wanted to have on Manufacturing Happy Hour for a while. I'm looking forward to this interview. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. My first question for you is, I've read that Your work aims to fuse design and engineering to create novel human experiences. That's a big statement. What do you mean by that? I haven't heard that one for a while, to be honest. Okay.
0: But uh, I guess if you go back, I'm an engineer. I've been building fairly complex hardware and software-type products my entire career. Think mobile phones, robots, 3D printers, all sorts of devices. And... um, You know, usually when you build hardware software and more and more recently, by recently, I mean the past uh, decade plus, uh, nothing we make in hardware land is disconnected from the internet. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I was working on or when I'm talking about experiences, uh, at the end of the day, to put it very simply, it's like. I love when uh, people change how they work as, as a result of technology and an interface. And it's not, it's not always the case that there is hardware involved. Uh, I'm saying it in general, but the stuff I like typically has something to do with the physical world. Even the mobile phone, when you think about it, we, it it used to be that uh, all our interactions with information was. And perceiving the internet was up and up to some, up until some point was, um, use this weird new thing called the browser. What, what is that? Yeah. But, but then there was the moment they moved to the phone and obviously we never look back and now it's mobile is the internet. Internet is mobile, but mobile phones used to be pretty dumb. Not yeah. too, not too long ago. Right. So it's also like it was part of my career is you know, spending a decade like trying to make mobile phones smart um, and useful as an interface. So that's where that is really coming from. And, you know, the, the MIT Media Hub is kind of like this, uh, many ways to describe it. It was definitely one of the largest toy stores on the East coast. Mm, Okay. Never heard that described that way before. So you can, you can build a lot of really cool interactions. And so that, that's really where that characterization of the work I like doing, excited doing comes from.
1: Well, I'm excited to dive into your interest in the physical world, your background. But first, I got to ask you a manufacturing happy hour style question. So okay. Tulip is a frontline operations platform. I haven't really heard that before until yeah. I heard of Tulip. So how do you describe what a frontline operations platform is if you're having a beverage with someone?
0: Who, who is that? Someone.
1: Ooh. I don't know. Some, Just someone. so, we, so we calibrate. Yeah. If, it would be different, I guess. Let's say an executive at a manufacturing company. I think that would be the persona. Okay. So you want me to sell. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there we go. Basically. There we go. <laughs>
0: um, look, um, the, the simple way to think about it, it frontline operation platform is is a completely new way uh, to rethink about your industrial operations software that runs Your production. At the broadest sense, it brings in a a platform as a service to the people who are actually designing, building, operating production lines and operational environments. Those can be your assembly floors, machine shops, logistics centers, uh, the lab where you do the quality, and to the people who live and work within those operations. And it, it gives them Tools, modern tools of, of, of uh, the times we live in. So cloud-native, w- workflow building with no-code and low-code, means to describe and characterize the operation and then put it into production or running it, uh, giving you all the data that flows out of this operation into a- an internal analytics package such that you can continuously improve the operation. And unlike, you know, frontline operation platform, unlike the traditional stack where you would... Uh, you know, have very rigid definition of what is your data acquisition there and what is the, I don't know, integration to your ERP. And maybe in the middle, you have a very um, bunch of tools. It could be legacy XYZs, where XYZ could be, your MRP, MES, CMMS, all sorts of tools, Mm -hmm. like with a bunch of acronyms that are supposed to give you that. Uh, uh, Those are, I would call them uh, uh, typical, they're static uh, software that are very hard to, um, make to support what modern operation needs, which is, you know, I'm not going to belabor the point, but I think we're, we, we could agree that the world runs on data today and the ability Mm -hmm. to make decisions on the data. And and so that, and that's what it does to the people who actually use frontline operations. And we should keep this in mind that they're able to, you know, we, we talked about changing how people work. And for us, and I think you would agree that the bo- both of us both both of us, in, in our careers were knowledge workers. Mm-hmm. So w- we take making decision based on data uh, w- with great tools as a given. Why is that not the case in operations for everybody? Yeah. Uh, there, there people demand that, but it's okay. Well, where are the tools to actually achieve that? So that, that's what Frontline Operation Platform does.
1: And I'm optimistic we're getting closer to that. I know your company is helping people get closer to that, yeah. make that more the standard In the industry, before we get further into talking about frontline operations, I want to hear a bit more about your background. Because before you did Formlabs, before you did Tulip, I mean, you had experiences at companies like Samsung and Sun Microsystems. Tell us how those experiences influenced your perspectives around frontline operations.
0: Yeah, so so I kind of touched on it a little bit. So back in the day, and this is like more than twenty years ago, I was in love in this technology called mobile. Mm-hmm. And I come from an embedded background and I kind of saw what mobile phones are capable of that and they they can run um, Java and that was like software that could create like beautiful UIs and they connect to the Internet. And this is the dawn of the Internet itself and the dawn of Internet connectivity on uh, mobile platforms. And I was like, this is amazing. It's going to change everything we do in consumer. Uh, but I was like, this is all. I was like fascinated with the fact that this is going to change business. So I was sure this is like, this is as big as, you know, uh, PCs and windows or something like that. And this is me in my twenties. And I was like pretty ambitious. And, and I thought th- there's just a huge opportunity to do all sorts of software. And a lot of the work there back in the day, I'm talking about early 2000s is like bringing software infrastructure to those phones mm-hmm. uh, to help a lot of developers create, Software for for that kind of platform. So, constrained device, low power CPU, not a lot of memory, weird interfaces with soft buttons, you know, we, that used to change their functionality. I remember that, yeah. And all that. So, that that was like, wow, there's a lot of like fundamental, like, how do you make a lot of developers be productive? So, that kind of gets you back into, well, uh, what is this no code thing? I mean, I've been doing no code for 25 years, you mm-hmm. know, and started there. And then it was a lot about, well, if if that's the device, then it's going to change how organizations work because work is going to start happening everywhere, on the go, at home, how do you connect it to business systems and things like that. So in my decade in mobile was a lot of interface work. So mm-hmm. like what would make people quickly build software for this thing and actually repeatedly do it? And this is before the app store and post the, post the iPhone, you know, mm-hmm. so I kind
1: of lived in an interesting era. Yeah. what I'm I'm curious then, was that you that realized this was going to fundamentally change the way we were going to work? Or was that the industry as a whole that realized it? I could see it going both
0: ways. I think I was just one of many people of my generation yeah. that were practitioners. And, and I think it's much like, I don't know, people nowadays don't question that people <laughs> growing up with Gen AI right now and they're like, oh my God, this changes everything. Yeah, And it kind of does and it kind of doesn't, you know, looking back, you know, because one of the examples I like, yeah, word processing completely changed, but it's still word processing, mm-hmm. you know, still there's the main use case is still there. So, but now, you know, we do it on the cloud and collaborative and all that. So the, the point is, is that I, I don't know if I knew all the things back then or my generation knew certainly mm-hmm. in just one of many, but uh, you, it, you couldn't ignore it back in the day that. The pace was really picking up, and like people are going to be always connected, and there's a ton of business applications
1: to be built. One thing I'm curious about in your journey is your Tulip interfaces. Now you're still the chairman for, for form, labs. form labs. thats the yeah. word I was looking for. There's an office right in Milwaukee where I live. I should have had right? it come off the tongue a lot quicker. But how did you, I, I, how did you go from mobile to 3D printing? To what you're doing now at Tulip. It feels like I'm interested to hear how Formlabs fits into that journey.
0: So it's, Formlabs was born out of um, collaboration with um, the kids in my class at MIT oh, okay. when I was finishing my master's. And, and Tulip was also born out of my PhD work at MIT. And so they were like parallel crews and I was like doing kind of two projects uh, uh, more or less at the same time. Mm-hmm. Only like this thing is that you can't, you can design as much as you can for companies, but you can't really decide, decide like, oh, this one I'm going to, des- I'm going to design and such is going to be successful so mm-hmm. much over that period of time. So not, th- that's impossible. So, and Formlabs went through a very uh, sort of um, dramatic growth in its early years. Mm-hmm. And uh, it went through a very successful Kickstarter campaign. It, it pioneered the uh, desktop uh, stereolithography category, and you know the connection is is about you know we sometimes we say a tulip and other things, and it's like democratizing some piece of professional work. In, in Formlabs' case, it's making this type of technology routinely available to people who think and create in CAD. That's democratizing that access in terms of capabilities, uh, price, and and and. And that, that's what defines access. And to do that well, you need to build a piece of equipment. You need to create the right supply chain around it so you have a lot, a lot of useful materials. You need to have great software and user experience to enable that. And so so designers and engineers, uh, whether they're in the beginning of the product development funnel or they're down on the shop floor printing just in time you know, because they need jigs to reconfigure their production, uh, you're again, back to the same theme, you're changing how they work. Mm-hmm. And so would they go back to a world that now that they have this access to this technology, they're not going to use 3D printing. That doesn't make sense to a lot of, uh, a lot of people. And that's how Formlabs grew to ship over a hundred thousand units of, of this, uh, printer, uh, printers. And, and then additional printers we developed this company is almost 12 years and going, be 13 next September, I believe. So, um, that, that's, that was a journey. But at the same time the um, the moment you know tulip tulip was uh a, a big idea I had in my in my sort of head for for a long time when I was working on on um at at m i t and part of my research and it's at some point there are these like non non regret moments that you have to make tough decisions and it was definitely not not an easy one back in the day and and it was a moment where I thought you know Formlabs labs is Pretty stable. Had a great leadership team for for that moment in time and, and stage appropriate to the company, and the tulip moment to be born as a as a company outside of a project in the making within MIT. I kind of felt it, and so it, it was no. It, it it wasn't an easy decision, but it you know sometimes you just you just do do that, and um, and a lot a lot gets figured out later and. And that that that's sort of like the gist of it. And and but I kind of never left, and I am not operating there. But I am, you know, being a chairman is, yeah, it's a bunch of time, but it's not it's not limiting me from doing, you know, full time, you
1: know, building tulip. We'll be back in a moment, but first, a quick word from our sponsor. Are you looking for some manufacturing entertainment? Then you need to check out 3M's Clash of the Grinders student edition competition, which you can do today by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 3M. This web series pits soon-to-be pros against each other in a showcase of the next generation of skilled trades talent, and it all culminates with the winner receiving a $10,000 scholarship sponsored by FANUC. Throughout the series, you'll see the competition, manufacturing trends these emerging leaders will face in their careers, and how new innovations will help them work more efficiently and sustainably. 3M is committed to skilled trades education with a goal of creating 5 million STEM and skilled trade learning experiences, and this is part of that mission. Make sure to subscribe to 3M Abrasives on YouTube so that you don't miss a single new episode of Clash of the Grinders, Student Edition. Again, manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 3M will take you right there. And now, back to today's episode. Well, I think this is a nice segue to the next question because when I think of platforms in our industry, think of like... IoT yeah. platforms. I think of MES systems, manufacturing execution I, I try systems. I not to think about IoT platforms. I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine why. So that's what I want to ask you next, because you're talking about you had this passion for Tulip. It was always in the back of your mind. So why was there a need for a frontline operations category then?
0: It's really simple. You would walk into any one of those operational environments I would uh, des- I described earlier. Mm-hmm. And this could be in a m- huge multinational or a much smaller mid-market business, and the internet, as you and I know it, is not there. And people are working with um, spreadsheet papers, sticks and stones, and you keep hearing the same thing. When it's like we we don't have a solution. We're on year three of implementing the ERP. We'll get there later. Um, so they're telling you that story on l- lack of adoption of technology, and on the and they the, uh, always it comes to like so and so we're here but it doesn't exactly works what we need we'll come back to that later okay. and the other thing they're saying and the value is not there or the price doesn't make sense and by the way and again in our buzzword bingo it's like and this is even before people knew how to pronounce industry 4.0 we've kind of started crystallizing the thesis with onikubat that I know you spend time with now mm-hmm. um, um we were like thinking this is, this is nuts. And, and then, you know, talking to all the usual suspects and, uh, you know, VCs and others and everybody tells us, Oh, you know, um, so-and-so large scale company has it all, or this, uh, global SI, they they build it all. There's no reason for this company you're talking about to exist. This is before we even found the company Mm -hmm. when I'm like, okay, great. That means (laughs) we're onto something. (laughs) And, and, and that, and, And, you know, that that was the case more than a decade ago. Mm -hmm. And we're so far from done, even a decade
1: in. I've got a question about that a little later on. I want to ask you what's talk to me about composability a little bit. I saw that out on the floor. And, you know, the way I look at it is you've moved from having what were and what you call monoliths these platforms that you couldn't do much with it's like this is the way it's set up so what does composability mean in practice yeah it's not by the way
0: we didn't coin this i don't just the only person on the planet calling legacy software monoliths Mm -hmm. it's just a good way to describe their architecture yeah a bunch of people likely very smart motivated set in a room and you have to be in software development you have to be finite otherwise like you will never get to deliver code Mm -hmm. to anybody certainly that was the case before cloud software emerged but Mm -hmm. now we're solidly in that space so it changed how we deliver software so software in general our B2B enterprise uh, the good one in my view should be designed with uh, continuous delivery so for example uh, when you delightfully log into your Google Docs or whatever other vendor you're using Mm -hmm. you're like Oh wow! There is this new feature, and it works for you. And nobody asks you if you want this, and you're like, "Okay, that's great. That's continuous delivery." And like, we take that for granted as well. Mm -hmm. And you can't do that in in this old architecture that you're bound to like software in a box or software enterprise software that's being updated, maybe once a year, maybe sometimes much more. It's a good comparison, and that doesn't. Doesn't make any sense because so many B two B platform tools, think Salesforce and thinks think, think uh, Workday and all these kind of large scale platforms that support hundreds of thousands, if not millions and millions of professionals in mm-hmm. their organizations, work with continuous delivery and on the cl- they were born on the cloud, and to think that that's not going to happen in operation is just madness from my perspective. So where composability comes into place, first of all we have to zoom out and understand composability is also not unique just for operations. Mm-hmm. We are bringing it to operations, but in you, you're you seeing best-of-breed type of IT infra, uh, architectures composing all sorts of different, we're going to use this for our connectivity, and we're going to use that for our data lake, and we're going to mm-hmm. use this. And that. that is like one level to think about composability. But when you dive into the platforms themselves, like... You ever use, have you ever used Salesforce before? I have. So yeah. if I'll give you access to our Salesforce, there's some stuff you will be able to do mm-hmm. because it's Salesforce. And you will go into the standard interfaces and you'll find this report, that report, or whatever. But some stuff, you, you'll have no idea unless someone takes you through. Why? Because we've composed Salesforce to fit the needs of our business. Mm-hmm. And this is back to the point I was saying before that, you know, it's heterogeneous in nature. It's like we, we have the same needs, but they're kind of different between different organizations, even though they're very, very similar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, composable production system or composable MES uh, or composable frontline operations, you you name it the way you see fit, uh, gives that power to the people who are actually designing and building uh, production environments. And um, it's not a maybe one day, perhaps, it's, it's now mm-hmm. and, and, and they're there, and the reason this is happening or the, the reason I think composability is so, the need for composability is so pronounced in these environments is because they're complex and physical and dynamic that makes it very hard. So like wh- what I mean by that, think about the transitionary workforce, mm-hmm. how many people come in and out and need to train. Think about how r- real physical products are being born, engineer, you know, from NPI, so so new product introduction mm-hmm. to um, um, engineering change uh, management to product life cycle. So how long does a product scale ups, mm-hmm. uh, supply chain management. So I, the, all that is like physical stuff. That means that if both of us have uh, the same, you know, this a production line that even builds the same product across the same company across two different sites, they might be slightly different. And to do that, yeah, you need tools that are able to deal with this kind of intensive uh set of differences and then a lot of people like to talk about the ITOT side of things yep and and that's also where it comes to, to play because why does your ot need to live sort of independent of your it architecture mm-hmm. it, sh- it shouldn't and why do we need to have long debates on what is the right specs or you know the data model the the this conundrum uh, what's the data model and, mm-hmm. and why can't it be defined by the people actually doing the work again not to worry not to not belittle the need for uh, governance and things like that that's not I mean that's not um, something we're neglecting in our conversations but uh, this ability to compose need uh, companies need that and and people who do the work need that so that's where I think it it's at at the moment
1: well I mean i if I'm looking for a theme in this conversation so far, I feel like you're taking the things you've seen in the mobile world, we see in our everyday life, and you're making yeah. manufacturing more flexible, to oversimplify yeah. it a bit.
0: I don't, I don't think, you're oversim- I think you're I think you're on the right track. Uh, what, one, one very clear vector you can think this through is software, the lens of software and, yeah. and the art and craft of software engineering. And, and, you know, software engineers, uh, you know, when I started and we talked about Sun Microsystems, I remember one of the team leads and I'm like this super young engineer and they bring me like this giant binder mm-hmm. with a, like IEEE model of developing software and I'm sticking it on my table. It's like, don't read this, mm-hmm. but I got to give you this. And this is like the, the waterfall deluxe version. Yeah. And of course, how do we develop software today? It's like Agile, Scrums, mm-hmm. Sprints, all these... and where is that? all this is coming from, from lean? Yeah. We're you know, gonna, so, so, so like software engineers and software architects stole all that or, you know, grabbed it over to lean, uh, because software is very complex. And like, we know that software is sort of the glue and the conduit in which like we get the data and all kind of stuff. You know, what's the problem? It's like, there's not enough software engineers in the world, period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, specifically, there's not enough of them in operations. Yeah, to create all the software that you need to have this flexible manufacturing that you're talking about. It. and by the way, if you're doing software, software engineers are kind of you know they're. I don't want to. Uh, I am one, so I'm sure. I'm, I'm being a little bit careful. It's not we really lazy. It's just we like to be efficient. I get so, no, I get you. So, yeah, yeah. a good engineer is a lazy engineer. Yeah. I've heard that we term before. We do automation, and we're going to use whatever we can to to get by and to get still get the quality and throughput and all kind of stuff. And that means tools. Yeah. Uh, where, where are those tools? And by the way, is that also, how we get more software engineers and operations is more tools? Yes, and, okay. And and here's another one. Here's another angle to think about this. Uh, if you plot the the uh, adoption of internet as pronounced mm-hmm. by browsers, active blah blah sessions, this and that, and open source adoption, it they're correlated. Why they're correlated? Because software engineers share. And open source is a, is a thing. You cannot imagine the technological landscape today without open source and open standards. So ecosystem matters. Yeah. yeah. And and that creates velocity. Where is open source and ecosystem for operations?
1: I'm, you're creating it, is what we I'm are looking busy, at.
0: <laughs> we're busy creating it with a bunch of great companies and partners. And yeah, we have a role to play and many other people have a role to play. So all of that is what makes manufacturing flexible down the line.
1: The next round of our interviews coming up, right after a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Gray Solutions. Gray Solutions is a systems integrator that's been there, done that. Manufacturers turn to their team of over 275 solutioneers with unusual challenges, head scratchers others couldn't or wouldn't dare take on. Gray Solutions has done this time and time again thanks to their in-the-trenches experience and beyond-the-box applications in production. Personally, I've really gotten to know Gray Solutions over the past few years. I've seen the accolades they've received from the industry. I've gotten to know their solution and their expertise in everything ranging from automation and controls to digital transformation, cybersecurity, robotics, vision, process packaging, all the way up to some significant turnkey solutions. But most recently, I got to know their founder and CEO, Walker Maddox, during his appearance on episode 158 of Manufacturing Happy Hour. If you want to hear for yourself how Walker has turned Gray Solutions into more than just a systems integrator, but a team of industrial trailblazers that let curiosity lead them to creative solutions and profitable outcomes for their customers, then head to manufacturinghappyhour.com/158 to tune in today or visit them at graysolutions.com. I'm excited to see how Gray Solutions continues to innovate and revolutionize smart manufacturing. I recommend that you see for yourself as well. And now, back to today's episode. You brought up lean manufacturing, yeah. I, and, and I've heard you kind of do lightning rounds in your interviews around buzzword bingo. Yeah. Um, I do, since we've got about uh, a little less than 10 minutes left in our interview, I do want to get your quick answers on a few categories, starting with lean manufacturing. Okay. So you have a book called Augmented Lean. Yeah. So what was missing from lean manufacturing? Like We know about eliminating waste, increasing productivity, that the world needed augmented lean to exist.
0: So nothing is missing. Okay. And that's why we use the word augmentation. Oh, okay. Augmentation has a lot of, I, I'd like I spend my PhDs around augmented reality and like this word augmentation, I've been thinking about it for a long time from a technological perspective. So it, it's about the term or the, the the field that it defines where lean lean operations or lean manufacturing, lean companies... This is, um, you know, from the Toyota production system onwards, as has been captured and then proliferated, uh, was fundamentally focused on the organizations. Mm-hmm. It was um, it was laying out great groundwork, and I don't think those principles are, and that's what we're saying in the book. They're not. They're not wrong, mm-hmm. and they don't need, and they're not broken. Even though my conversation with Moabak that started at some at some point, he told me I think Lean has failed so far, which was like. Really, really interesting how, how he said that. Yeah. But the augmentation comes from the simple fact that 30 years ago, there's no internet, mm-hmm. there's no cloud, there's no big data, there's no mobile phones. And you can't ignore the fact that these 30 years of accelerated technology adoption uh, did not proliferate into the fundamentals of how lean works, mm-hmm. how you empower and you create sort of superhumans because like now when you think about the augmentation we talked about the knowledge workers so how do you give those tools like for lean practitioners to um you know have a more uh, it's 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 almost a more radical version of lean that gives them independence because they're, they're in command of the data the creation of the data mm-hmm. such as their ability to to make decisions that are lean driven are just the the way we're the way we're living today where you know something happens and uh some important deal you're tracking with salesforce what what happens like 15 alerts fire almost instantly 10 slacks and all that kind of stuff and it's all real time and you're like of course so so lean is not broken in my view but it needs it needs augment augmentation to you know the reality that we live in today so
1: i uh I've got three more questions for you, two related to industry, one something completely different. Okay. Um, You brought up Industry 4.0 earlier. Yeah. And and I'm curious, uh, as far as capitalizing on digital transformation, I feel like this Industry 4.0 era has been going on for what, maybe a decade now or so? Decade plus, yeah. Um, And I was listening to one of your podcasts on augmented ops when I was running around Boston Common this morning. and You know, it sounds like we might have missed the opportunity to capitalize in there, at least at least in North America, where maybe Europe did a bit better job of capitalizing on it. I'm curious to hear your perspectives on it because, judging by your facial uh, expressions, I might not be getting this right. But the main question I have is, what do we do to not miss opportunities like this in the future?
0: So, a little bit of historical context so like the project like of industry 4.0 like you mm-hmm. know the, the european spelling uh, yeah. there, there's a lot of your, IE at
1: the end yeah, yeah. IE at <laughs> the
0: end so there's a lot of european union uh work and project research and so on that went into that and uh you know the us were just a bit more cowboys which is like mm-hmm. kind of implement stuff mm-hmm. less research i'd say um and i i think there were a lot of different names to Describe different aspects of the similar phenomena, and they're all kind of insufficient and is put together potentially wrong and dangerous. So it's like you call a thing this is Industry four point and this is like industrial IoT uh, or industrial internet, and it's like all these things are just quite honestly, they're not the most important things because uh, te- technology to connect, collect data doesn't matter how you call it. Uh, existed mm-hmm. and, and and has become more available and more commoditized even for industrial settings so we 're seeing this phenomenon specifically where we talked about monolith but on the edge you know uh, there, there's some great edge techn- uh, collection, you know, uh, data collection technology and it will be as long as there are PLCs and the like. Mm-hmm. And some of guess what? Some of the drivers, uh, will move to uh, cloud-based, uh, connectivity. And if your network talks to the cloud and you have good failovers and you're not in high frequency land, you might be okay with that. And if, th- if that's your operation, I wouldn't suggest you run a petrochemical plant on something like that. Then maybe that's okay. And, um, you know, and then COVID happens. I'm I'm just giving you a quick, a little bit of yeah. different tastes of like thinking about this. And then from a very traditional, almost conservative, let's not spend money on all these kind of things and, and pilot purgatory, I'm sure you heard that name. We heard a lot. And, and, and like people are afraid of change uh, overnight, more or less, lots of product, emergency product approvals, certainly in pharmaceuticals and med device, but also in other places because you had to get, you know, trucks with whatever, to, mm-hmm. to the to the economy it was kind of a hit with the, with COVID, and no one's questioning the cloud anymore. Why? Because you're at home and you need to log into the factory and you need to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so now we're in the post-COVID world. Like, how can we unlearn what we've learned? We can't. Mm-hmm. So, long story short, fifty percent of the battle is not technology; is the culture and the adoption mm-hmm. of these different sets of technology so I don't think the opportunity is lost I actually think uh, ma- maturity is here so we the less we need those buzzwords the more uh, it tells you the how how ready we are to accept that okay this is actually happening and you know why this is, is important for companies and potentially the listeners our customers our partners it's like it's not about it's about staying competitive so it's an, an imperative it's not like it's kind of like I'm telling you, like, look, I'm going to start this great business and my whole digital strategy, we're going to work with uh, billboards. Yeah. I don't need this digital advertising. Like, you know, it's like the world has changed. And early the earlier companies accept that and and uh, put themselves to it, um, you know, uh, the faster they will get back on the com- competitive um, track. And it's. I think it's similar to like the way – some companies were like, you know, we have fax machines. So this email thing, let's give it a couple of years. Mm-hmm.
1: It sounds like what we need to do is find way. Because a lot of the things you've been saying are we're learning, we're seeing cloud in our daily lives, we're yeah. seeing technology in our daily lives, and we're bringing it to the factory. I'm wondering when we're going to start innovating in the factory first a little bit. I mean,
0: we're seeing it all the time. And I, to, yeah. this is what I'm trying to say is like for us, it's exhibited behavior of our partners in Large companies and mid-market plus companies where, you know, we're less supporting 20-person mom-and-pop shop. I mean, they they can also use Tulip Essentials as much as they want, but but that's not our core uh, customer. Core customers are complex um, environments that make hard, you know, hard stuff. They're already doing it. And why? Because the the humans on their shop floors are just like you and me. You know, Mm -hmm. we we would not start our work with a a clipboard with a piece of paper on it and say that that's how we should do value stream mapping. We would likely fire up Miro or or whatever visual tool and then we'll tie it to a spreadsheet and then we'll try. Okay, we need to get some data from the PLC and maybe there's a because we're engineers. So we'll build something like that. That is exactly where. The customers need help to put it in a platform that gives them what their fellows and any other constituency, HR, marketing, whatever,
1: already have for decades. So I know we're at the end of our conversation here. So you got to give me one minute answers okay, to each I'll of try. these last questions. And one of them's a big one. What will the future or the industries of the future look like based on our conversation today?
0: Highly connected, very composable architectures yep. that uh, lines between the edge and cloud. Mm. IT, OT, as well as the their uh, set of use cases that they're supporting. So not just this is the system that supports the frontline, and uh, the frontline will exist also sometimes in the back end, maybe in the HR department. Oh, okay. And, I like and, that. And highly connected means that you can have virtual value streams where one factory is uh, building one thing and another factory is building another thing, and they're Almost intrinsically connected. We're already starting to seeing that. So that is a that is a bright, composable future we're headed towards. Um, from from the economical value of that, it's it's going to be tremendously impactful. That companies that adopt this sort of agile, composable approach will see huge dividends in operas- operational excellence that will translate into. You know, lower, post- lower cost of poor quality, you know, higher uh, product life cycles, you know, um, lower cost of training people. There, there's a lot of highly measurable things that we're seeing all the time. So that that's the future I'm
1: seeing. Well, I think that's a nice summary around our conversation. The final question is, you've got quite the personality in the manufacturing and automation world. Like you do your mm-hmm. own podcasts, you've written a book. I feel like more people need to be doing that. So how is um, having... Augmented Ops, your book, how has that helped you and Tulip Interfaces?
0: So, uh, first of all, this is not natural to me at okay. all. Okay, you so seem you know. like a natural. <laughs> I don't feel like a natural. Fair, okay, but, but, practice. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, it was very clear from the beginning, um, and I think it's true for many great companies, is that they they help to create real ecosystems hmm. And um, I think I think we're on it and and we wanted to um, have different ways to bring the community together and tell the stories. And, and that that's why we were pushing on it, because if you if you look at the book, it, the book is saying many things, but it doesn't give you the answer. Mm-hmm. We, and, and the reason is because we don't know the full answer just yet. It's not the time to say, okay, what happens after Industry 4.0, and here is how you fix lean A, B, and C. We're more or less in a point in time where we're seeing the practitioners and the people they serve. So think about the engineers. It could be safety, lean, quality. It can be the the head of factory or the executive working on the new supply chain design. We're all grappling with those issues from different aspects. So we wanted to get the word out there. We wanted a place where we can discuss and help facilitate this community there are millions of people who self-identify as lean quality and operational excellence people they built the factories you know why f- factories are important because they're actually helping the human race survive
1: yeah lifeblood you know? of our economy like we, Helping it's survive. Our economy,
0: mm-hmm. it's our it's our most basic needs and all the way to our leisure and you know everything in between and um they will be there forever and so And I really think there is a sort of a tectonic shift in the eras right now. If you think lean has been 30 years and digital transformation has been 30 years and all that kind of stuff. And now, you know, we're a minute before Gen AI takes over and we're, you know, so we have to have a community to like deal with that. And uh, that's what I'm personally you know dedicated to do and and through Tulip and our ecosystem want to usher. Well, I and you're part of
1: it, too. I'm trying. Here you are. I'm trying, sharing stories, getting out there, having conversations yeah. as if you're having a drink with someone. So I appreciate all the work you're doing. Um, like I said, you do come off as a natural. So clearly all the the work you're doing, sharing the story is paying off. So Natan, I just want to thank you so much for jumping on Manufacturing Happy Hour.
0: Thank you for having me. And thank you for visiting
1: Tulip. It's Absolutely. exciting to have you. It was a great tour. Great conversation. We'll see you soon. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Hey, thanks for listening and thank you to the whole Tulip crew for making this interview possible. By the way, major shout out to Ronnie Kubat, Tulip's CTO. He gave me a great interactive tour of their experience center right before this interview. If you find yourself in Boston at any point, I definitely recommend trying to pay these folks a visit. Easily could have talked quite a bit longer on these topics. If you want to hear more, definitely check out Natan's podcast, Augmented Ops, where he gets into, I'll say, pretty much every question I asked him. You can hear maybe like an episode on every single one of those topics. So check it out. We didn't even get into generative AI today, and I know that's on Natan's mind, and you probably picked up on that too. So, you know, maybe that'll make a great topic for a future part two of this conversation. Anyway, as promised, I'm going to share a few of my takeaways. First, I got to say... I'm pretty impressed with how Natan saw an opportunity for the B2B space when he was working in the early days of mobile, while I'm sure most everyone else was focused on how mobility was going to change the way we interacted in our daily lives. Another thing that struck me when I was listening back through this was his story about starting Tulip while still at Formlabs, specifically when he saw that Formlabs was a stable business with the right leadership team for him to be able to step away. Next takeaway, composability gives power to the people building production environments. And this is needed because production environments are complex and physical and dynamic. Great point as well about needing more software engineers in general and then in operations and giving them more tools as a way to get there. Next takeaway, takeaway number four, I like how Natan highlighted that part of the idea for augmented lean is that when lean manufacturing came up as a production process and ideology, the internet didn't exist, so now there are more opportunities to put humans at the center of lean manufacturing as they become more enabled to improve frontline productivity. Last thing I'll say, and this is a bit of an extension of the last topic, is Natan talked about how we've been doing lean for the past 30 years, Industry 4.0 for the past 10, and now we have this new inflection point that will have a massive impact on manufacturing, but as Natan said, manufacturing is here to stay. The Manufacturers that take advantage of these opportunities are going to be the ones that transform their operations leverage data, leverage composability to optimize their unique operations to eliminate waste, increase productivity, and operate more competitively. All right, that was a lot, but if you want to recap, head to manufacturinghappyhour.com 165 for the show notes, plus links to Natan's book, Augmented Lean, his podcast, Augmented Ops, and of course, there you can connect with Natan and Tulip interfaces as well. Final couple things I want to say, shout out to 3M and Gray Solutions. Thank you both for sponsoring this week's episode. And if you want to be a part of conversations like this, well, hey, this is your opportunity to join the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community. That group is set on LinkedIn, but going to manufacturinghappyhour.com community will take you straight there. It's a private group, so request to join. And then make sure to send me a connection request and uh, just so I know that you heard about this by listening to the podcast. So can't wait to see you there. Can't wait to chat. In the meantime, stay innovative, stay thirsty. we'll Catch you again next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.